If you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 145, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into that text in just a minute. But I love music. Uh, music has just always been a big part of my life. Not that I've ever been any good at it. Uh, you know, you can't sing very well. I always joke around with the youth. I make a joyful noise, uh, and that's about the extent of what I can do. Uh, I wanted to be in the All-State Youth Choir at one point, but after meeting with my music minister for about an hour, I realized that it wasn't going to end well for me. So I was like, well, let's, you know, let's step away from that. Uh, we're not going to try that after all. And uh, So instead, I just married somebody who can sing really well, and I pray very hard that my kids take after her and not after me in the, the gift of music. But music is just a, is a huge thing, right? Songs are very influential. Like, if you think about it, if you were to look at the you know, top 100 or the, the iTunes store and see the, the songs that are most popular right now, you can actually kind of get, you know, get a finger on the pulse of what is popular in youth culture at that time. Uh, I definitely challenge you as parents to kind of check that out from time to time, see what your students are listening to, uh, and just kind of know what's going on there. Uh, I may not recommend listening to all of them, but you may want to look at the lyrics and just kind of see what's going on there. So it kind of has a finger on the pulse of what culture is going on and what words are being said and what those things mean and, and all that. So it's very, very interesting when you look at that. But it's also, you know, as you think about songs, it's a source of like national pride, right? You know, the, the attacks in Paris happened last Friday, and, uh, you know, the, that was an awful, awful terrorist attack. And yet, this past week, well, two things, actually. Did y'all know that as the, the people were leaving, it happened outside of a stadium there in Paris, where France and Germany were playing soccer, and uh, just in a friendly match. Well, as they finally get to leave the stadium, do you know what they did? They all started singing the French national anthem together as they were walking out of the stadium, even though they didn't know what they were walking into and the chaos that was there. They knew there was chaos there, but they didn't know what the the chaos held for them. And then, when they played England a few days later in England, they all sang the national anthem together. Like If you watch the coverage of it, they actually sang the national anthem and they showed it on uh, TV, just so that everybody could see English and French singing this together as a sign of unity, of, you know, of solidarity, of standing together. And so this song, you know, that it just meant a lot during this difficult time for the French. But as you think about it, songs mean a lot to us all the time, don't they? If you watch musicals, right? My wife was a musical theater major at OU for a year before she transferred to Ole Miss for broadcast journalism. But you know, a musical, they say, basically the emotion just wells up in the people so much that the only thing that they can do is sing about it, right? And you think about us in church as we are singing songs to the Lord, as we get to these familiar refrains, as we get to these familiar choruses, as we get to these verses that mean so much about our salvation and about what God has done in our lives, all of a sudden the, the singing kind of goes from here to way up here as everybody joins in with great enthusiasm because the emotions are just carrying through of how amazing our God is. And I say all that because even though I don't do music well, I love music and I love the Psalms in Scripture. 
And so this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 145, and we're going to read the whole text. We're going to read 21 verses of it, but we're only going to dive into about nine of the verses. Because I want you to, I want to get the context of it. I want you to understand where they're coming from here, and then I want us to dive in and get the meat of what they're talking about. So, let's dive into Psalm 145, and this is what it says. This is a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm of praise that you have given us so that we can give back to you these words of praise, so that we can give back to you uh, just the majesty that you deserve, Lord. Father, we praise you that we are able to come here together, that we're able to meet under this roof and, and hear and sing and read about your amazing works. So, Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word right now, that you will bless this time that we have together, that your Holy Spirit will move. And, Lord, that we will respond in obedience to all that you've called us to. For you alone are worthy of all of our lives. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So let's set up a little bit of context here, okay? I think it's important as we're reading Scripture to understand some of the the things about it here. Uh, One thing that you might want to know is that this is the last psalm written by David. It's the 145th psalm. This is the last one that we know of that he wrote that we have here in the record. And so we want to know that he is the writer of this psalm. That's important in context. We also want to know that it is the only psalm out of the 150 psalms 
that has the title, A Song of Praise. I was absolutely amazed when I read that, because you'd think with Psalms that there would be a lot that were given that title, but this is the only one that has that title as a Psalm of Praise. And here's another fascinating uh, context on this, but it is written in an acrostic to, to show the completeness of God's character. Now, what do I mean by that? Basically, what David did when he wrote this psalm was he made each verse start with a Hebrew letter and went all the way through the alphabet, you know, from Aleph, Bet, and all the way down to the very end, right? So he took these Hebrew letters and he made this a poem because he wanted to show it as the completeness of God's character. This is the, the power of his praise. This is how much that he really cares. This is the work that he put into it. You know, he's saying, I didn't just write this down. You know, as I was just sitting there, this is some hard work. This is some, some praise that I've put together and worked on. And here it is in its completeness. And I did it, you know, basically from A to Z. Because God covers all of it. And I just think that's fascinating as we are coming to praise him today. To think about the completeness of the praise that David brings here. So, who should we tell, or whom then should we tell about the greatness of God? I think there's three people that we should tell. We'll be good Southern Baptists today. We'll have three points and and conclude at that, right? So here we go. Three people we should tell about the greatness of God. First, we should tell God how great He is. We should tell God how great he is. Now, that may sound a little bit weird, doesn't it, to talk about, you know, telling somebody how great they are. But yet, when we think about how he created us and we think about how all that he's done for us, then he deserves to hear our thanks, right? He deserves to hear our praise. He is the one that is worthy of all of that. But let's look at the text. Let's read verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You see, that's the way David starts. This whole thing is a song of praise to, to, the, to God, and that's the way that David wants to make sure that he is emphasizing things from the very, very beginning. Look, you are my God, you are my King. And that's the first thing that I want to notice about the way that King David praises him. King David praises God as his king, right? We use lordship a lot in our present day and age. We like to talk about the lordship of Christ. But here, David is talking about a king. Now, the fascinating thing about that is David is a king at this point, right? He's the king. This is during his reign. And during that time, one of the things that that kings would have to do is if somebody came and they conquered your land, then you would have to pay a tribute to that king, right? And see, David didn't have to pay those tributes. David had conquered lands. David was one that brought Israel to great fame and renown, and Israel was strong because of the time of King David's reign. But David's not resting in that, is he? David's not saying, oh, look at me, look at how great I'm doing. But David instead is saying, I know who's ruling, even though I may be the human king. Because he knows that he was simply a shepherd boy. He knows that he was only able to slay Goliath through, his strength, through the strength of the Lord. 
He knows that his armies were only able to defeat the Philistines because the Lord willed it. And so he's given this praise back to God. And, and he's basically saying, look, God, you are king. You already own everything. You already have all that you could possibly want. You've created all this. You have cattle on a thousand hills. You are Lord. You are king. And I can give you nothing but praise. It's not that God is lacking anything, but yet David comes humbly saying, here is my tribute to you. You are the one who reigns. I am your servant. You are my king. And he's laying that tribute at the feet of God. That is humbling for a king, isn't it? Think about that in the physical world. If a king was to do that, is complete submission. For a king to do that is to say that he's completely dependent. For a king to do that is saying, look, I'm really not the one in charge. You are. And yet here's David abdicating his throne, giving up his throne, saying, you are the king of this people and we're following you. He is worthy of that praise, isn't he? He is majesty. But as we're looking at that, I want us to realize that David's not doing that out of obligation, is he? As you read that psalm, as I read through that psalm, did you hear any, you know, sounding like he was a slave to this praise? Anything that made it sound like that this was something that he was dreading or something that he just kind of had to do or was just going through the motions? It's not that, is it? As you read that, you realize that he is saying all of this purely out of delight. He is excited. That's why he made it like he did. That's why he made it through all these letters, right? That's why he did the acrostic. That's why I give you that background at the beginning because this is the passion that he's coming to when he's praising the Lord. He sees it and he knows that this is something that is, this is important. This is something that is delightful to him that he's able to come and praise his king. Y'all, as I, as, I, as I say that, when we come into his house to praise him together, are we coming out of obligation or are we coming in delight? Are we coming excited that we get to give that praise back to him, that we get to pay that tribute, or are we doing it just going through the motions? Our worship, our act of praise, our, that is our tribute. That is part of giving things back to God, what he's given to us. That's our way of saying, you are my God and my king, and I will praise you. And David gets that. David gets that as he bows before God here. And it's amazing to hear the worship from his heart. So one, we see that King David praises God as king, but there's another thing that I want you to see about the way that, that King David praises God. He praises God constantly. Look at some of the terminology that he uses here. He says this, he says, He will praise God forever and ever. He says, I'll bless your name forever and ever. And then again in the second verse, he says, I will praise your name forever and ever. You see, David has seen the character of God. 
David has read the Torah. David has you know, studied what God has done. And so he's giving him back this praise. And he knows that that praise is going to continue forever and ever. That's what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is going to be an endless praise for our God and our King. So if that's what heaven's going to be like, let's start doing that now, right? Let's start practicing now what heaven's going to be like. As we're singing these praises, as we're going about our days, let's praise Him with all of our heart. Let's have this overflow of emotions that these songs bring to us and let it just come out and praise for Him. Not only does he say he's going to praise God forever and ever, he also says that he will praise God daily. He will praise God daily. It's right there in uh, verse 2. He says, every day I will bless you. Do you realize what a privilege it is that we, every single one of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ can meet with him anytime, anywhere, any place that you want to? You have that privilege as a follower of Christ, as someone who loves Jesus, has has him as your God and your king. You are able to meet with him daily, hourly, any minute, middle of the night. Our God is not sleeping. But are we taking advantage of that? Are we seeking to praise Him daily? Are we coming before Him humbly and and offering it, not only when we're meeting together with delight, but also when we get up in the morning and we spend time in His Word and we spend time in prayer? Are we taking time during that to, to sit down and just praise Him for how great of a God He is and for what He's done in our lives? Is he your God and your king? I love what it says at the end of verse 3, though. At the end of verse 3, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. As I read that, I thought about us trying to, to figure out what outer space looks like, right? You know, we're constantly making new discoveries in outer space, aren't we? We're seeing new stars, new solar systems, new you know, planets, all of that kind of stuff. We're looking out, we're seeing different things. And, and it's, I mean, think about how far we've come just in the past hundred years on what space looks like, right? I mean, we've made just advances after advances after advances. And, and we have a greater understanding now than we've ever had, right? But we still fall so short in fully understanding what space looks like, don't we? We still don't have a full map of outer space. There's still more people, or not people, but more places to discover, more planets to discover, more solar systems to discover. It seems like it is unsearchable, right? But do we give up looking at it? Have the scientists just waved the white flag and said, oh, we're done. I'm going to walk away from it. That's about as far as we can get. Let's give up. Let's call it a day. They're not, are they? But our God is even greater than that. Our God is even more unsearchable. His character is even greater. It's unfathomable. And so, each day as we're meeting with Him, we get to search that out. We get to dive in deeper. We get to go farther in knowing who He is. 
It's amazing that God has revealed so much of himself to us. But he's still unsearchable, but that doesn't mean we stop, does it? doesn't mean that we give up. We keep going deeper and deeper and deeper because we want to know him. Him who made us, him who saved us, and him who will reign over us for all eternity. Don't you want to know him more? Don't you want to just meet with him? Don't you want to just praise him? Whether it be through song or scripture or prayer. God is calling us to praise him daily. On our own and all together. So I pray that we're doing that with delight as well. So. Point number one is that we need to tell God how great He is, right? Do y'all, y'all get that? The, the kingship of God and, and His glory and His power and His might. There, if you read through the Psalms, you will never run out of praises that you can give to God. You can give Him refuge and strength and ever-present time and help of trouble. You can give Him King and Lord. You can give Him Savior and Wonderful Counselor and Beginning and end and creator and redeemer and friend. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more about God that we can just give back to him. And just say, God, you are truly amazing. And I just want to praise you. So we tell God about how great he is. Next, we also need to tell people how great he is. Notice the shift there. We're not telling them how great they are, but how great our God is. I was looking at that from verses 4 through 7, and this is what it says. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud to your righteousness. So as we're telling people how great it is, how great he is, then we need to to invest spiritually in the next generation. It says that in verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another. As you're reading that and looking through it, the actual Hebrew word there is telling us that we need to uh, commend, says that we need to sing praises, right? We need to brag on God to, to the next generation. We need to lift him up to other people. And I want to take a second, and, and you know, because I don't, I don't get the pulpit too often, so I, can, I want to take a second right now. But I want to brag on the connect group leaders that I have in the student ministry. Um, because they have taken this text, and they may not realize that they've taken this exact text, but they have taken it, and they're doing that in the lives of the students on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, and they're investing in them. And so as we have connect group leaders that are youth connect group leaders, I just want to tell you all, thank you for, for doing this and doing this well. But, and, and we're doing it in, 
children's ministry and we're doing it in preschool ministry. I love the fact so many times we're riding home from church either on a Sunday or a Wednesday. We'll be like, hey, John August, our four-year-old, right? You know, you wonder how much a four-year-old is going to be able to grasp. We'll say, hey, how, you know, what did you learn today? What did, what did you learn at church? Did you have fun at church? Yes, I had fun. What did you learn? Oh, I learned about Joseph and his coat and how his brothers were jealous. And, and he can tell you this story about what God did through that. Or, hey, what did you learn on Wednesday night? And he can tell you about how these people have carnivals and festivals. But the whole reason why they do it is to tell people about Jesus. And so he's getting this missions mindset as a four-year-old of, of doing things, but doing it to tell people about Jesus. And so we're seeing the fruit, even in our family, of, of many of you investing in the next generation. And there's still more needs for some of you to help. In the preschool area, in the children's area, you can live this text out on a weekly basis. But maybe you don't like the formal teaching. Maybe it's simply discipling somebody. Maybe it's just meeting with them. Maybe it's just sitting down and and talking about Scripture together with somebody who maybe is a new believer or you know, maybe it's evangelism to where you need to share Christ with somebody and, and invite them to come into the faith. We have this command of going and making disciples of all nations, but let's start with where we are too. You have people of influence all around you. And we're talking about people outside of your family, but for those of you who are parents, this text should ring so true for all of us because we realize that we're to invest in our children personally. It's not just the job of the church. It is the job of you as parents, as the primary disciples of your kids, to make sure that they know of your God and your King. And so we want to invest spiritually in the next generation. It's like you're placing deposits in the bank account, right? If you don't put anything in, you're not going to get very much out when you, put, you know, when, when you come down to it. But instead of a physical bank account, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about rewards in heaven. We're talking about things much, much greater than a dollar bill. And so I wonder, as we're sitting here... Are we just sitting in and soaking it all in? Are we taking what we're learning and investing it in other people so that they can grow spiritually as well? It's what we're all called to do. It's what has gotten Christianity this far. The power of God has used people to expand His kingdom from generation to generation to generation. So that you sitting here in Hernando, Mississippi are getting to hear the gospel, getting to hear of Christ's great love, even though it started with just a few disciples on the other side of the world. Never ceases to amaze me the way that God has used people to expand all over the globe and continues to do that today. The interesting thing is that it starts with creation And it's completed in redemption. Continues to redemption. 
You think about how complex the human body is, right? You look here, it talks about commending your works to another, declare your mighty acts, the glorious splendor of your majesty, your wondrous works. You know, as you read that, my automatic thought is, once again, like the, the physical world, right? And so we're thinking about creation. We think about the human body, the fact that how complex the human eye is, how complex the body is, and yet we're able to think, we're able to have emotions, we're able to speak, we're able to see, we're able to do all these things, right? But yet he takes it, and and David changes things as we get to the end here. Verse 7, he says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Do you all realize the abundant goodness that he's talking about there? It's the salvation that God offers us. The abundant goodness there is the salvation that is made available for all mankind. The fact that he wishes that no one should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so as we're talking about these works, as we're investing in the next generation, you can use the things around you, but then we also want to get to the heart of it all, which is Jesus Christ and his redemption from sin. Which leads me to the next point. We need to tell ourselves how great he is. So we tell God how great he is. We tell people how great he is. And we need to tell ourselves how great he is. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all And his mercy is over all that he has made. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves of his grace and his mercy. How great is the grace that God's poured out on us? Knowing that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... All of us deserve the wages of sin, which is death. All of us deserve the wrath of God. But God, in His grace and in His mercy, has decided to take that away from us and place it on His perfect, holy, righteous Son as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we can have His righteousness. So that we can have a relationship with Him. So that we can know Him and love Him, and experience an eternity with Him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the redemption that we're talking about that we need to tell others about. But first, we need to tell it to ourselves. We need to realize that it's nothing that we've done to deserve it ourselves. It is a free gift of God. It is His grace. It is His mercy. And so many times it's hard for us to remember that. I know I was saved at a very young age, and I count that as such a blessing. But if I'm not careful, I can get prideful because I didn't have this long list of sins as a six-year-old that seems to be, you know, unforgivable. And I can miss out on the grace and mercy that God has shown me, just like He's shown to Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners. You see, the grace and the mercy should humble us as we think about it. 
I love this quote by James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, because I think it sums up our, our thoughts of God, and especially in the, 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 the culture that we live in of trying to earn salvation, of trying to, to be perfect, to perform well. But this is what Boyce says. He says, Certainly God is almighty and all-wise and all-knowing. God cannot be God without being all those things, all those important things and more. We can expect them, but not mercy. The unexpected thing is that God should be gracious to those who have spurned his rightful authority and even murdered his son when he came to earth to save us from our sins. Do y'all get that? Yeah, we think of God, we think of him as all-knowing, we think of him as all-powerful, we think of him as all-wise, we think of him as sitting on this throne far away, righteous judgment, right? All that kind of thing. But yet, you realize mercy is counterintuitive. It is against what we would typically think of as an all-powerful being. Grace is, is not what you expect. That doesn't seem to be a sign of strength. But yet... God has shown us His grace and His mercy, every single one of us. That is the characteristic of Him. That is separate from any other religion on the planet. It separates us. It makes it Christianity different. Because we realize that we can't obtain it ourselves, but He has to give it to us. He chooses to give us grace and mercy. And so, each day as we're praising Him, I also pray that we're telling ourselves of His great grace and mercy. One more thing. He's also patient with us. He's also patient with us. You read in verse 8 there that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I want us to flip back to Exodus chapter 34 for just a minute as we look at this. But in this situation, uh, Moses has you know, come down from the mountain. He's, you know, they've had the golden calf. He's broken the Ten Commandments. Now he's meeting with God again. And, and this is what he says. or This is what the, the Lord says here. He says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you you who you are shall see the work of the Lord." For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So here you see a people who are rebellious and sinful and deserve the wrath, but yet he's patient with them. And yet he makes a new covenant with them. And he's offering that for us as well. 
2 Peter verse 3 or chapter 3 verse 9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, perish, but that all should reach repentance. As we hear that today, I pray that we don't take for granted God's patience. If you've never experienced Christ as your Lord and Savior, realize that today is the day of salvation. And so, ask Him to be your Lord and Savior today. He is patient. He wishes that no one should perish, but that all will have eternal life. So here's the point. Our lives should be filled with praise as we think about all He has done, and it should overflow as we invest in the people after us.